prefer the garden metaphor myself, the sort of this notion that, you know, we have to tend to it, we have to sort of make sure that we keep, you know, sort of the garden healthy, and, and I'm a terrible gardener, so I know that, you know, I cannot grow anything. You're listening to The Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Welcome to the Slavic Connection. Um, I'm Lauren Nyquist and I'll be the host for today's session. This is Dr. Mosser and he is a professor of international relations and global studies here at UT. He also works in the governmental department and the Center for uh, European Studies. In the past, he's worked at Southwestern University uh, in Georgetown as an associate director of European Union Center of Excellence and a fellow of the Robert S. Strauss Center at UT. He also acted as the uh, initial military and education liaison for UT LBJ School of Public Affairs, Robert S. Strauss Center's Climate Change and Africa's Political Stability Grant. Uh, prior to this, Dr. Mosser was also the assistant professor at the U.S. Army School for Advanced Military Studies at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, where he taught international relations, security studies, and comparative foreign policy, looking explicitly at Western Europe. All true. <laughs> Is that pretty good? Yes, thank you. Yes. Very comprehensive, right. <laughs> I thought I needed to include almost all of that because <laughs> it does come together right now to be... Right. To create like a very good resume. <laughs> it gives me a perspective on a lot of different things. Yeah. Yes, true. Um, so I guess today, as I have previously stated, I want to talk to you about three main areas, um, all of which I feel like your classes that I have with you um, have touched on. Um, so I guess the first I want to talk about is the future of democracy. Here in the United States, as a product of the U.S. public education system, we're always told that the ultimate like, form of governments is going to be democracy mm -hmm. and that all governments around the world are going to eventually reach this pinnacle of governance and it's going to be a democracy. However, we're seeing with Hungary and in Poland in Europe, especially right now, a kind of a move away from that, a resurgence of nationalism. Um, so I'm interested to hear from your perspective working with Europe where you see democracy going. Right. It's the question of the age. It's the, a question that has existed, you know, sort of as long as democracy has existed, but we thought we'd put that question to bed, um, you know, sort of after World War II when democracy, you know, sort of successfully overcame the twin challenges of defeating fascism and, you know, sort of and, and going up against what we considered to be at the time monolithic communism. And then we really thought we put it to bed at the end of the Cold War when you know, sort of Fukuyama writes his famous piece about the end of history, there's no more historical dialectic, it is liberalism, capitalism, democracy, take your pick, add all three together, uh, and it's, you know, sort of the victor. And what we've seen since the sort of early 1990s is a long and slow and now more rapid decline in kind of the institutional underpinnings of democracy. And I guess that's what I would really, that's how I would answer this question is, Democracy is only as strong as we believe it to be. Um, and so throughout much of the Cold War, democracy itself was unchallenged in the sense of you know, sort of unpacking what democracy was. Everybody got to Tocqueville as a student, you know, read about democracy in America and, you know, sort of what makes America exceptional. And then we, we kind of parlayed that into America and Reagan's famous phrase, or borrowing from Jefferson, the shining city on the hill, and, you know, sort of the rest of the world aspires to us. Forget about all of the complications that came with our Cold War policies. That was generally a, uh, you know, sort of completely 
unchallenged proposition that it was democracy versus whatever, right? After the end of the Cold War, uh, and especially with the resurgence in nationalism that we've seen as a response to the challenges that come from globalization, uh, the underpinnings, the foundational underpinnings, the philosophical underpinnings of democracy uh, have started to be challenged, right? And so things like maybe everybody shouldn't have the right to freely express their opinions or maybe this idea that democracy means open borders or maybe this idea that democracy means social welfare policies for everybody these sorts of you know sort of modern 20th late 20th and 21st century uh, notions of democracy have begun to lose some of the luster that they've had. Now, I talked about the challenges from globalization, and that really ramps up in the 90s, you know. So we have that twin uh, effect of the end of the Cold War and then the really uh, sort of massive expansion in what we now call globalization that really took hold after the ideological battle of the Cold War ends. So you have the World Trade Organization that's formed uh, out of the out of the global agreement on tariffs and trade. So WTO comes into being in 1995. It ramps up through the 90s. China joins in 2001. All of a sudden now the world is connected globally. Uh, trade is booming. The United States throughout the 90s and goes through its longest expansion of history. The European Union relaunches the uh, <clears throat> sort of EU project in the 80s. Looks great throughout the 1990s. Expands eastward finally in 1994 after, or 2004, I should say, after years and years of keeping Eastern Europe at arm's length. Everything looks great, and then we have a series of crises that nobody uh, expected and that we react to very badly. First with the, and sort of in European context specifically, the financial crisis. That was a financial crisis here in the United States and in Europe was a sovereign debt crisis that just about broke the EU and just about broke a fair number of its member states. Europe dives uh, in terms of GDP per capita, in terms of belief that the EU is the right project. Uh, and it just starts pulling itself out of that hole in 2012, 13, and 14. And then the Syrian civil war, you know, sort of sends massive numbers of refugees uh, out of Syria, many of whom don't make it all the way to the European Union. They stop in Turkey, but a fair number of whom, over a million, make it to the European Union in 2015, accepted into Germany. Uh, which means they're accepted into the European Union, which means that they get all the rights and privileges of member states in the European Union. And that provokes a massive backlash against the kind of social underpinnings of democracy. So you have these twin shocks to the system in Europe starting in 2008 and then, you know, sort of ending or beginning to end in 2015 that we're still dealing with now in 2019. And the response to that uh, has been a very flawed EU-level response, every nation-state for itself. So we see the rise of nationalism in places like not just Britain, but in places like Poland and Hungary, where we see it in France, we see it in uh, Greece, actually. We see it across the board that nation-states have turned inward. The EU has flailed, really, since 2015 in figuring out what to do with, uh, you know, sort of migrants, what to do with social welfare policies, how to pitch itself to its people. Um, and it, it's left it to nation states to make those decisions. And of course, nation states have made their own decisions, many of whom have taken what we could see from the outside as kind of anti-democratic decisions. Yeah. 
So I guess based on that, because I've heard this rhetoric repeatedly, because here in the United States, it's kind of democracy or it's bad. So we associate anti-democratic governance automatically with mm -hmm. a negative kind of tone. So we often see it as being related to a disease where it's going to spread. It's a con like it's a contagious disease that's going to continuously spread throughout the United States unless we treat it, um, which has a very ominous impact. Right. Do you think it's deserving of that tone or do you think that moving away from democracy um, is going to be as bad as um, political scientists. Yeah, and you know, you've got a point there, and your earlier question talked about, you know, talked around this as well. We have a kind of a teleological interpretation of democracy, meaning that it's, it's sort of evolutionary, and that democracy is the end point, right? Mm -hmm. To sort of, like, you work your way up from, you know, sort of non-democratic forms of governments, oligarchy, and all the other sorts of things, and then you end up with some sort of democracy, whether it's direct democracy or representative democracy or something along those lines, and that's it. That's the end. There's no need to evolve beyond that, right? I mean, the European Union after 1945 said, no, there actually is a step beyond the supranationalism. We have to take it away, take some sovereignty out of the hands of nation states because, you know, history has shown that they don't necessarily, they can't trust uh, themselves, essentially, to kind of handle this. So to the, to the second question, though, is sort of, is democracy ideal, right? And, and, and I think that's probably what it comes down to. It's an ideal type. And it is, in the sense, aspirational. Um, it requires the, the metaphor that you chose, uh, contagion, right? You know, sort of a sort of disease and that the, sort of the body politic is infected and until and unless we treat it, uh, it's only going to get worse and eventually the patient dies and we're back in the 1930s again, right? You know, sort of and that works as a metaphor. I prefer the garden metaphor myself, the sort of this notion that, you know, we have to tend to it. We have to sort of make sure that we keep, you know, sort of the garden healthy. And, and I'm a terrible gardener, so I know that, you know, I cannot grow anything. Uh, so I, I, I like this metaphor because I, I need to work at it, you know, and that's what we need to do as well. And so things like education, civics classes in schools, uh, understanding the philosophy of democracy, not just the practice of democracy, right? Yeah. Um, and that, so is it, is it the sort of, is it democracy or evil, right? Because we often, you know, and it's easy to make that, you know, sort of democracy is, on, is, is good and everything that's not democracy is bad. Well, of course, that's a, that's a spectrum, right? There, you know, so democracy is not just a binary mm -hmm. democracy or it's more like flavors of democracy, you know, I like flavors as a metaphor also there, you know, so yeah. uh, we have democracies that are. Uh, very, very direct. There's one, you know, sort of Switzerland is still a direct democracy. They vote on practically everything. Uh, we've got large representative democracies. The United States, India, for example, the world's largest democracy, is conducting its polls starting here in April, uh, and they're going to run the election for a solid week. Um, you know, the fact that India votes at all is a pretty remarkable achievement. And then the, the fact that it votes generally pretty freely and fairly. You know, sort of those of us who sort of believe in, you know, sort of in democracy as a, as a generally good thing find the Indian example with all of the flaws that it brings, uh, you know, sort of an, a, a sort of, yes, check the box for this is a good thing. Mm -hmm. um, but it's easy and it's actually way too easy to fall into the trap of saying, yeah, good, uh, democracy uh, is what we aspire to, don't 
you know, sort of dig too hard in that particular garden metaphor that I was using because uh, we just want to look at the pretty flowers that we're growing, not necessarily look at sort of how they're done or the work that we need to put into it, right? Yeah. Um, and so until and unless, like I was saying, via things like education, via things like uh, sort of bringing citizens into the enterprise in a way that says democracy works for you as opposed to democracy works on you, right? Sort of having the state do things for you as opposed to doing things to you. Uh, that I think we've lost some of, you know, and that's, those are those kind of institutional pillars that I was talking about before, the belief, this kind of normative belief that democracy uh, is generally on balance more positive than the alternate forms of government. That's Churchill's famous phrase, right, the, you know, sort of the worst form of government except for all the others. Um, and you could always count on Churchill for, to turn a pithy <laughs> phrase, but there's, some, there's a lot of truth to that, right, yeah. you know. Um, but it's too easy to then say, okay, great. We'll just, you know, sort of work to democracy, work to get to democracy, and then we don't have to work anymore. Yeah. So I guess where we're seeing one of these breakdowns of this supranational organization kind of movement is in the EU. Right. And we're seeing now Brexit, although kind of at a standstill right now within British opinion, mm. um, we could see potential changes in the greater EU formation. Um, and this is of concern, particularly with the students that I work with in Ukraine, because they see themselves between either the EU or Russia. Right. So do you think that Brexit is going to spell the end of the EU, or do you think that the European Union can withstand such a hit? Yes, Brexit will spend, spell the end of the EU as we know it, but that doesn't mean the end of the EU. Right. The, one of the things, the EU is in perpetual crisis. Somebody who studies the EU, sort of, the first thing you learn is that the European Union is never not in some existential crisis. It's always stumbling from crisis to crisis. Brexit is the first time that a member state has ever voluntarily decided to leave. In fact, no member state up until 2009 with the Lisbon Treaty could even leave. There was no exit clause in the European Union's fundamental treaties at all. Um, and so, but the thing you have to remember about Britain is that, as we say, it's in Europe, but not of Europe. It's never really been truly European in the way that, say, Belgium or in the way that, say, Luxembourg or even Germany or France are, right? It wasn't a founding member, came in late, famously negotiated a series of exceptions to the policies. Uh, and so Britain leaving is a, fun, is a blow. There's no question about it that Britain leaving is a blow to the European Union circa you know, sort of 1995 to the present, right? That is a, that absolutely is true. But the EU will soldier on. It will turn into something else. It will turn into something uh, that is likely closer to what Britain wanted all along, a kind of cooperative trade relationship that is much more about cooperation between sovereign nation states and much less about integration uh, of a supranational above the level of the nation state uh, entity that is continually pulling more and more sovereignty. I think the days of uh, nation states giving up sovereignty to the EU, they're not limited or ending by any means, but the, the sort of depth of sovereignty that the European Union has gotten now is possibly we may be at the high watermark. I don't know. I don't believe, for example, that we are going to have a true European army or anything along those lines in the very near future. We may be headed in that direction, but the details of all that sort of thing remain to be worked out. With respect to countries like Ukraine that have been on the outside looking in, the European Union, and I sort of know this from my own Ukrainian friends, the European Union appears to be 
this sort of glittering, uh, you know, sort of entity on the horizon, very aspirational, right? And that's the way the Eastern European states felt not long after the wall fell as well, is that, you know, sort of, this is what we need to do. We need to join the European Union. We need to be in the EU because this is the future. And if you look at polls uh, conducted not long after the fall of the wall in the early 1990s, Support for the EU in places like the Czech Republic, or at the time it was still Czechoslovakia, but the Czech Republic, uh, Hungary, they were in the 70s, 80s, you know, sort of like everybody wanted in. And those polls have declined to the point at which now, in many of the Central and Eastern European countries, uh, a bare majority at best still believes that being in the European Union is a good thing. And these are member states now, right? Uh, Ukraine will, goes back and forth, and of course there's the regional or the sort of intra-Ukrainian split between East and West in Ukraine as to sort of who and how, uh, you know, sort of what side of this particular divide Ukrainians find themselves on. The EU has done a pretty poor job of representing itself to not just Ukraine, but to Georgia and to other states as to, you know, sort of what it stands for. There's really not much hope of Ukraine joining the European Union in a formal way. Yeah. Um, a, cooperative trade arrangement that is in place now, the one that sort of the trade arrangement that essentially got us to where we are in Ukraine back in the sort of, you know, 2014 era or even before then, that is probably as far as it's going to get at some point, you know, because the geostrategic, geopolitical consequences of bringing Ukraine closer to Western Europe, bringing Ukraine closer to the European Union are uh, pretty dramatic. And I think the EU has gotten basically as far as it's going to go. Yeah. So I guess that brings me into my last and final area. Um, and you've repeatedly told me this, is you are not an expert <laughs> on True. Ukraine and or necessarily kind of broader Eastern Europe or Russia. But I want to know your perspective on where you see the future of conflict between Russia and Ukraine and whether or not you think that the United States should continue to have a vested interest in maintaining our lethal aid deals with Ukraine or allying ourselves within the region. Right. And that's the multi-billion dollar question that we are sort of asking ourselves is what's the relationship between Ukraine and, for want of a better word, the West, right? Um, And that relationship is multifaceted. So you have an economic relationship, you have a sort of political relationship, you have a security relationship, however broadly defined. Plus, you have a frozen conflict in eastern Ukraine that is, uh, you know, sort of, it's in everybody's best interest, and I think I mean that, everybody's best interest for it to remain frozen. It would, it would be the world's best interest and Ukrainian's best interest to solve it, but it's not going to be solved anytime soon, and so better frozen than solved. Uh, which gets us to, I'll go backwards, I suppose, from your questions and talk about the lethal aid part, right? So, you know, that was a major decision that the Obama administration chose not to take. Uh, the sort of back when the Obama administration was thinking very hard about what to do with Ukraine, it was non-lethal aid explicitly. Yeah. Uh, because the Obama administration had a very different perspective than the Trump administration on what our role in Ukraine was supposed to be, right? And the administration, the previous administration saw lethal aid as a very slippery slope that would be portrayed, I think, sort of accurately by Russia and its internal Ukrainian allies as us taking a side. Mm-hmm. Whether or not we took a side, I mean, it, you know, sort of you can find evidence on both that we did, in fact, take a side is just not, but lethal aid is one of those sorts of you can't ignore sorts of things, right? Anti-tank weapons, all the sort of stuff that would could be used offensively. And, you know, former, you know, sort of 
uh, Senator McCain when he was still alive and was really, really, really one of the major figures in pushing for lethal aid uh, and was very unhappy with the Obama administration. And when the Trump administration came to power, um, that was one of the big changes in foreign policy is that it believed very strongly that we should be more actively engaged on the side of uh, sort of the Ukrainian, the, the non-Russian partisan anti-Russian you know, anti side. Um, and yet that's the policy, and yet the actual deliveries of lethal aid have been held up in some places from what I understand. There isn't really as much flow, and we don't have a big pipeline of, you know, sort of major weapon systems flowing into Ukraine. It hasn't been that sort of, you know, all bets are off kind of thing yet. Um, but the policy is very much under review. And it's interesting because, of course, the Trump administration is often accused of being too close to Russia. And yet here we're talking about being close to Ukraine in a way that the other, you know, the previous administration wasn't. And it's also interesting because the Trump administration has, you know, sort of as a stated goal, America first, right? This is a stated policy goal. So Ukraine occupies this very interesting place in American kind of geopolitical relations as a, as a fulcrum between our policies in Western Europe and our policies with Russia. And it's always been this way. I mean, this has been Ukraine's fate for, you know, ever, is that it has always occupied this very interesting geostrategic pivot point. You could talk about energy security and how, you know, it's always been outsized importance for Ukraine. You could talk about the, you know, sort of sitting astride these major uh, trade routes. You could talk about it as being, you know, sort of uh, the key for pick whomever invader you want to, right? You know, sort of Ukraine has always been in that position. And so American actions, geopolitical actions in Ukraine are in some ways a kind of microcosm of American geopolitical actions in, in, in Europe more broadly, right? Um, and we are using Ukraine in some ways as kind of a test bed to see how far and, you know, sort of how far can we engage in what level, at what level can we engage without provoking Russia uh, without following the conflict so that we end up with a full-blown Ukrainian civil war that goes beyond Donbass and goes all the way west. Um, you notice we haven't really said much at all about Crimea because Crimea appears to be, from the administration's point of view, a, you know, regardless of how we say formally that it was an, it's an illegal occupation, the administration is not pushing very hard to wind that back, right? That is just sort of another one of these sorts of things where we're just like, okay, we'll just let that be for now. Um, and so Ukraine really, to me, is a kind of a, an experiment in diplomacy, how and kind of geostrategic policies. How are we, the United States, and by extension the West, uh, and by that I mean NATO and the European Union, uh, working to keep Ukraine from destabilizing? You know, it's essentially stable now, not great, but essentially stable. How do we keep it from destabilizing and turning into uh, something much, much worse? Yeah. It's going to be interesting. So we have the election three weeks as of yesterday. Absolutely. So I we received the latest polls, which put Zelensky ahead, which would supposedly spell the end of kind of Ukraine's connection with Russia. Tymoshenko is apparently in second place with Poroshenko being in third. And a distant third is what I saw, uh, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, of course, we're going to have the runoff, which will be April 21st. Right. Um, but it's definitely something that I know that you'll be watching. I will, as yeah. it just sort of not dispassionate observer, uh, again, and as a non-Ukrainian expert, I rely on you all to tell me sort of what all this means, but I can read the polls as well as anybody else. And yeah, we're going to see how much of this is election posturing and how much is actually kind of um, a signal that policy shifts are in the works. Yeah. 
Um, I guess the last thing I want to touch on is very directly where you see our concerns with Russia going. Should we be concerned with Russia as a possible threat to the United States, um, or is it a declining power, as some have asserted? You know, that's another non-binary, right? It could be both. Mm-hmm. Um, and it and some folks would say that if it's a declining power, that makes it more of a threat than the other way around. I, I go back to the way I was defining democracy: is it's a, it's what we believe it to be, okay. right? And so Russia has a GDP roughly the size of Australia. Um, Russia has uh, a population that is declining. It's uh, I think it actually is leveled off now, but it's it, it it's not falling off a cliff like it was in the '90s. But it's certainly. Uh, not booming in the way that some of uh, sort of major, you know, sort of developing countries are, right? Russia's, Russia is uh, a normative superpower. In other words, it, it, we believe it to be a superpower. We act as if it's a superpower, um, and therefore it is, right? But, and you say, okay, well, that's because it has nuclear weapons. It does, and it's modernizing its weapons and it's doing the sorts of things that superpowers tend to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also not the, it doesn't pose a level of threat that, say, its neighbor to the east might, right, in the sense of its economy is quite small, it doesn't, it's it's investing a lot in modernizing its military, but that money is going to the military from social programs. We're seeing, for example, that Putin's popularity is lower than it's been in recent years, mm-hmm. mostly because the economy is stagnated, uh, and he's had to pull money from various social welfare programs. Uh, that are keeping, you know, I mean, sort of keeping him in power, right? So mm-hmm. he's got to walk this very fine line. And yet we treat Russia as a superpower, or at least we treat Russia as a, as a viable kind of major power in terms of partnership because it does occupy geographically an enormous part of the world. It does have interests uh, around the world. It is a strategic partner still to us in places, I mean, like space, for example, right? Yeah. So it's... I think we're in the phase with Russia where we are competitive, and it may be at times very tense competition, mm-hmm. but we're not in a conflict sense, you know, in a way that, and I don't believe that conflict with Russia in the in the sort of military sense of conflict with Russia is going to play out, uh, you know, sort of anytime soon. We'll, we'll continue to see, hopefully. yeah, exactly, <laughs> hopefully not, you know, all these sorts of things, but I think we'll continue to see testing on the margins, we'll continue to see Russia innovate when it's in terms of asymmetrical sorts of conflicts, whether that be in the cyber realm or in, you know, sort of uh, irregular warfare, these sorts of things. And the U.S. will respond as we always do. We will continue, you know, that relationship will continue to evolve around the edges. And But the, the major part of, you know, sort of a U.S.-Russian great power conflict on the plains of Germany, like, you know, we planned for in the Cold War or an invasion of the Baltics or something along those lines, I don't see that happening. Mm-hmm. I, as I say, I hope. But, uh, you know, sort of evidence um, that Russia is building its weapons and doing all these other sorts of things could be really read as signals that, you know, sort of of a power that is trying to remain relevant. Um, and this is how they're doing that. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you so much for agreeing to talk to me. It means so much ah, just to hear course. your perspective. Thanks for having um, me, of course. And I appreciate you having you as a professor for not one, but two classes. <laughs> so yes, um, thank you again. Um, You're welcome. And I look forward to talking to you some more, hopefully, about this further in the semester. Sounds great. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> The views, opinions, and ideas expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. 
Thank you for listening to the Slavic Connection. Please visit SlavXRadio.com for more information and to subscribe to our podcast and YouTube channel. As always, we invite listener feedback, so please send us your comments. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Thank you.